Welcome to the Art Informant. My name is Isabel Amber and I'll be your host. I have been working and breathing Islamic and Indian art history for more than a decade. How do you breathe art history, you ask? Listen to this podcast to find out. In today's episode, I welcome Dr. Suzanne Compagnon, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Utrecht. Suzanne recently got her PhD from the University of Vienna with a thesis focused on Turkish Ottoman painting and more specifically on the single-page figures produced by the painters Levni and Bukhari in the first quarter of the 18th century. Ottoman painting in general has not been studied as much as its Persian and Indian counterparts and Suzanne dived into the topic with passion. In the episode, we talked about the career and work of these two painters, their sources of inspiration, powdered wigs, bonnets, and much more. As always, reproduction of artworks discussed and further links are available below the episode. Suzanne Compagnon, welcome to the Art Informant podcast. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you today on the episode. We've known each other for a long time. via emails and correspondence, but we met for the first time in Vienna last September. So it's very, very bizarre how things work. But here we are. And I'm so happy to have you on the podcast because today we're going to talk about a topic that we've never addressed on the podcast, which is Ottoman painting. So welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much, Isabel. And it's uh, really a pleasure and an honor to be here. And I'm very excited. <laughs> Me too. I am very excited. And um, yeah, as you know, I've written a lot of questions. Uh, so audience, be ready. It's going to be a very dense episode. <laughs> <laughs> but it's exciting, right? It's exciting to talk about Ottoman painting. This is not a topic that is uh, widely known and studied. So, you know, you're a specialist. So we're going to talk about that a lot. But First things first, uh, the first question that I ask all my guests is what brought you to Islamic art history? Who or what influenced you in your decision to pursue this field? Um, So I I think around 11 or 12, I had a history course, you know, just like one hour, one week where we discussed medieval uh, Baghdad and the translation movement. and this was something that was just like, I've never heard of this before. Like, how come no one ever told me about this before? <laughs> because at that point I was already kind of, you know, I had grown up with Greek and Roman mythology, was very interested in that. And the idea that people somewhere in Iraq, which for me was, you know, a very abstract concept <laughs> uh, place were interested in ancient Greek uh, philosophy, sciences, whatever, um, and that they had translated it and so on and so forth. It was just, yeah, mind blowing. And somehow that kind of got lodged in my head and kind of fused together with something else that happened um, actually, you know, a bit earlier when I was a child, which was 9-11. And, you know, that was kind of, as far as I remember, the first time that Islam became a thing in my head. Obviously, a very um, 
very, very um, unfortunate association. But it was also kind of this contrast, you know, like why was this public discourse um, linked to so much negativity, violence, so on and so forth, the only kind of discourse I seemed to find in my environment at the time um, when it came to, to, to the keyword Islam, so to speak. And on the other hand, you know, this class had introduced me to a completely different uh, aspect that kind of hinted to so much more and uh, a lot, yeah, complexity that just wasn't there in the, the public discourse uh, in France when I was growing up. Um, and, and so, yeah, that kind of combined with other interests that I had, um, and, um, made me want to study Islamic art, um, and get into this field more seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, you started really early. It's really interesting. Most people will say, oh, well, you know, I, I discovered Islamic arts a bit by chance when I started university, but you were like, no, at 12 years old. This is what I want to do. I mean, I had an art history magazine for kids. I, I don't know if you know Le Petit Léonard. Yes, it's great magazine. So, yeah, I was subscribed to that as a kid. And so I think I also felt European art was a bit boring because this is what the magazine talked about most of the time. And so for me, it was very familiar. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they must have had an article on, on Islamic art at or some aspect of Islamic art at one point or another. But, you know, it was very much compared to French stuff. Like, <laughs> there were just a lot less articles. So, yeah, I, it was something to discover and something that I was genuinely curious about. Mm -hmm. I, I know exactly what class you're talking about. It's like in, in sixth grade, in French sixth grade or si fifth grade I don't know but yeah it's like a very short introduction I had it as well but then I forgot everything and I rediscovered it like at university but yeah it's like a really short overview of the Islamic world and then it stops in the 13th century <laughs> it's very bizarre anyway um so you recently got your PhD so I'm jumping quite a quite a lot in time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but a few years later, you got your PhD from Vienna University with a thesis titled, and I quote, Closed Figures and Representation in Ottoman Book Painting. So obviously, we're going to talk about this topic uh, in a lot more details in, in, in a minute. But first, l tell us why did you choose this research topic? Um, so when I was doing my master's already in Vienna, um, I came across um, single sheet painting and more specifically the, the single figures uh, that Levni painted that I didn't work on for both my master thesis and then my PhD. Um, and I was very much interested in these paintings, had never heard or seen you know, them before. Um, and I started looking into it and it was also you know, hard to find uh, literature on this topic and I realized it was something that was very much understudied and in, in a lot of respects that could be said for Ottoman painting in the 18th century overall. Uh, so it wasn't just a problem of 
those specific paintings, but even trying to understand kind of the century or at least the first half of the century uh, was complicated. And the, the few articles that did exist um, were very much um, kind of the, the costumes, the clothing, this was a key word that kept coming up in these, in these, sorry, this, this scholarship. And of course it had to do with the detail um, in the paintings themselves uh, in the representation of clothing. Um, but it kind of, you know, in my master thesis, I was more interested in, in another aspect. Uh, but once I'd finished my master thesis, I didn't feel like I'd done everything and said everything there was to say about these paintings. And so I decided to go further and also look at Buhari, who was also in the scholarly literature kind of connected to Levni. And in both of them, this, uh, cl this uh, clothing dimension was always uh, very much important uh, in the scholarly discourse. Um, and then part of this discourse also centered on kind of presenting these images as um, documents of Ottoman fashion, of how people would have walked on the streets at the time. So for me, it kind of posed this question of what is an image? You know, what is pictorial representation? Um, is an image kind of a transparent um, window into the reality or is it something else? And um, that was an aspect that I also felt was under conceptualized in the field and where I thought I could, you know, both address kind of questions on the level of a very specific group of artworks and within the wider field um, that we're both a part of, maybe raise some points or some questions that had an implication beyond these very specific examples. Yeah, wow, that's a very good uh, reason why to choose this topic. Did you did you learn uh, Turkish and Ottoman Turkish as well? Did you take uh, classes on there? Yeah, so I started um, Turkish uh, during my master's. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I continued during my PhD and uh, also took uh, courses in Ottoman um, because obviously uh, some of the material I was working with uh, also involved, you know, looking at archival material or at least uh, edited Ottoman texts. Um, and I wanted to be able to do that myself uh, as, far, as much as I could. Um, so, yeah, I did. Awesome. Nice. So we'll come back to that topic in like literally five minutes. Okay. But, uh, moving on in the timeline of your <laughs> career. So right <laughs> after getting your PhD, you moved to Utrecht uh, in the Netherlands, literally right after. You didn't waste any time here. Uh, where, and you started a, P, a postdoctoral position uh, in Utrecht uh, University titled, I'll quote again, Rosewater, Nightingale and Gunpowder. A sensory history of the Islamic world, 1500-1900. What is this project about? Um, so this project, um, first of all, um, it's a team project. Uh, the, the main investigator is Christian Lange, who's chair of uh, Arabic um, studies at the university. And then there are two other postdocs and um, soon will be also a PhD student joining us. So it's a team project. And the idea is to investigate sensory history as part or um, 
as um, a method through which to study the gunpowder empires. But of course, we're going until uh, 1900, so it's kind of extended history of the gunpowder empires. Um, and um, the idea is to, to cover different geographical and cultural entities in a transregional and um, kind of transcultural, if you can say so, approach. And really with the idea of looking at the senses or sensory aspects of history as a way to better understand um, the historical experience of people living in the Mughal Empire, the Safavid Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and so on and so forth. Um, and for me specifically, it's about thinking about how the senses or specific aspects of the senses play into how we write art history or how we understand specific art historical objects. Um, and also trying to think, because I'm very interested in aesthetics in general, and the definition of aesthetics or the approach to aesthetics that we have traditionally in art history is very much intellectualized. You know, it comes from the tradition in European art history. And I think there are a lot of other dimensions to aesthetic experience that we kind of miss out on, um, possibly because they're also harder to track in a way. Um, but that's what I'm going to be investigating uh, as part of this research team, uh, trying to see how I can combine Ottoman art history or Islamic art history and uh, methodologies um, from sensory history. That is a very fascinating topic, and it's very trendy at the moment uh, to talk about a sensory history or a sensory approach to, to history. And... Obviously, you've started like literally less than a month ago, so I'm not going to I'm not going to ask too many questions because of <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but I'm very curious about the approach. Mm -hmm. How do you study sensory history? How what is your material here? Um, yeah, I'm very very. I don't have a, a very precise question. You can see. I mean, I I think there's um, there various ways you can do it. Um, and it's not a methodology that, at least as far as I conceive it, is as strict as, I don't know, semiotics or something like that, where it might have very specific rules or very specific theories that you apply and that might, you know, require a very specific set of circumstances for them to, to be, yeah, applied. Uh, so for me, it's more about well, one way of doing it is kind of traditional history writing. You write about the senses. So you look at sources, uh, written sources, and try to find passages or types of uh, texts where the senses are part of um, the information that the, comes up in this text. Sometimes it can be something that um, is very obvious in the sense of if you're looking at travel literature, it's often part of the description when you describe another culture or place you visit to also describe the smells, the sounds, so on and so And especially in Ottoman art history, there are a lot of texts that um, do have this information, but haven't been used in 
to look for this information before. Um, and then there are things that can be more general or more, sorry, not general, more obscure, or you wouldn't necessarily think about it first. And it could be, for example, you know, like Sufi, something describing Sufi rituals or uh, theological concepts where they talk about light or vision. And then you look at it from the approach of what does it tell us about these people or this author's conception of vision, of touch, smell, you know, whichever sense you're interested, or even the combination of all these senses together. While you were talking, I was thinking about specifically the tulip, well, the tulipomania, kind of, <laughs> uh, but the Ottoman tulipomania, I was thinking about those texts. Uh, you know, there are like a lot of like horticultural treaties talking about tulips in the 18th century in particular. And you could combine that, these texts with also paintings of flower paintings of uh, and paintings of tulips in particular. Um, that's a very interesting approach. That gives me a lot of ideas, actually, for my own research. So Once I've actually done more research, I'll be happy to talk about it with you in more detail. Yeah, I... absolutely. Well, that will be a, that will be a future episode uh, <laughs> when you when you are more settled and more advanced in that research. But I think this is this is fascinating and that could really lead to something. So are you going to focus only on the Ottoman Empire? Or are you going to do the whole Islamic world, quote unquote? Uh, so... The, I mean, the project as, as a whole works on um, kind of the whole Islamic world. These three regions, let's say. Um, and of course, we, we are working as a group, too, and having a lot of discussions across our different specialties and geographical or um, historical uh, areas of specialty. But in my person, my personal projects, I think I'm going to start off focusing on the Ottoman Empire. Um, and of course, you know, I, I'm, I'm generally interested in the Ottoman Empire in its diversity and its connections to everything around it. So I don't, I don't see that as you know something that necessarily restricts me to whatever happens within the Ottoman Empire. But it is my main area of focus. And at least uh, for to start off with, I will stick to to that area of focus. Well, uh, yeah, that's not a limiting factor at all, especially in the 18th century. Like half of the world was part of the Ottoman Empire. So I think you have enough room to play there. It's quite ambitious already. So, yeah, well, I look forward uh, discussing this research with you when you are uh, in, in a couple of uh, probably a couple of years I'd say uh, but uh, fantastic that's that's a great uh, that's a great project thank you all right let's go back let's let's dive into your field of expertise uh, obviously which is Ottoman painting um, it is a field of inquiry as I said that is far less developed than other pre-modern visual productions on paper, namely uh, Persian painting under the Safavid di dynasty and Indian painting under the Mughal dynasty. Why? Why is that? Um, so I think it, it depends which perspective you adopt, because of course, uh, maybe from the perspective of the scholarship in, let's say, English and more broadly European uh, in Western European languages, 
uh, Ottoman painting is still a, a young and budding uh, field, I would say. But of course, from the perspective of Turkish academia, it's much more developed and um, takes a much bigger you know, proportion of the art historical research than Safavid or Mughal. And it's also, I, I mentioned this also because the, the scholarship, you know, being produced in Turkey or by scholars working in Turkish institutions is of course a fundamental and very, very helpful and important uh, when, when you're working on this area. So it was also an experience for me, you know, as my Turkish progressed, the type of knowledge that I could access and how much better my research got because of that knowledge was also an experience that was very fundamental. But I think within the English speaking historiography, until the 70s, um, more or less, there was still this tendency to see Turkish, because often it was called Turkish art and not Ottoman painting, I mean, sorry, Turkish painting and not Ottoman painting, to see this as some sort of subcategory of Persian painting. And of course, this is very reductive. And fortunately, you know, since then scholarship has overcome this bias. Um, but it does explain to a certain extent, a kind of delay in, in a certain sense between um, the, the amount of research or the extent of research taking place around Persian, Safavid, Mughal, uh, Qajar topics, and then um, the, the research that has then more recently kind of become more prominent uh, on Ottoman painting. And just, you know, as an example, I think the first major survey on Ottoman painting in English was published in 2010. So as you can imagine, it's um, the quite, you know, of course, to have a survey, it requires a consistent body of research to write the survey, but still, um, it, is, it is a field where there's still a lot to be done and um, a lot of very exciting material out there. And then there's also a question that is kind of connected to this in the sense that a lot of the collections are in Turkey themselves and the degree to which they've been cataloged or have catalogs in English, uh, have you know kind of introductory works about the history of this collection varies a lot. And so sometimes it can be quite daunting or difficult for someone who's not specialized in this field or has an easy entry to this field to actually access or know that the material there exists uh, because um, there, there is this um, lack of widely available information about the collections. And even, I mean, even the European institutions that have collections don't necessarily always have this kind of secondary literature available or make these objects particularly visible. And then accessing the works themselves in Turkey also requires a certain amount of, well, language skills and um, knowledge of the, the different processes involved, the permissions you need and so on and so forth. Um, and that means that, well, maybe for BA students or people who are starting out, it might be uh, more complicated that other material where they feel 
it's it's easier to to access but so we're talking about ottoman painting which is great but what is ottoman painting um what are the characteristics of Ottoman painting? How do you recognize an Ottoman painting against, let's say, a Safavid painting? Since, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, Ottoman painting uh, has been considered as a, as a, a subcategory of Persian paintings, but which is absolutely not true, as we know. But how do you, what is Ottoman painting? So I, generally Ottoman painting is defined as painting production of the Ottoman Empire. So that would mean that actually it's not just book painting and album painting, which is you know what I've been working on, but this would also include uh, wall paintings or architecture that also has uh, paintings or you know wood paneling that has paintings. And of course, from the late 18th century, early 19th century until the Turkish Republic and the proper start of Turkish art in a way, um, there's also oil painting that becomes the main medium uh, yeah. at one point. But um, I assume that your main interest was on the book painting, and that's also yes. what I worked on. So yes. <laughs> Otherwise, we will be here until next week. So <laughs> indeed, let's focus on book painting, album painting. Very well. Um, <laughs> And it's also something that, like Safavid painting or Mughal painting, is not a monolithic, you know, painted production. So you have different genres, you have uh, different periods historically, you have also different patronages or structures of patronage that all influence or shape the product that you're studying. I would say if I had to identify a painting myself, I would start by looking at the headgear because the headgear in Ottoman painting um, or in a painting that has Ottoman figures um, is going to be very distinctive compared to what you would see in Safavid or Mughal or even earlier um, dynasties. So the headgear and the turban, the shape of the turban is um, one of the easiest ways of identifying the figures um, and, and then, of course, there are certain subject matters that uh, are typical or at least very important in Ottoman uh, painting, for example, from Suleiman's reign. And then, you know, in the 16th century, you have a huge production of illustrated court histories that stage the Ottoman sultans uh, and their court stage, court ceremonial. Uh, the, the Ottoman dynasty as a, as a whole. And uh, this is something that is generally considered to be quite specific to Ottoman painting. And because it's linked to this structure of the palace workshops, uh, there is also a certain stylistic coherence as to the way that the, you know, the compositions are structured, the figures are represented and so on and so forth. Of course, you can also try to define it from the perspective of formal characteristics, that is in my opinion very tricky because in, in some cases there are certain, as I said, this court style uh, that's associated with court histories that has very specific um, characteristics. But um, this was also shaped by, for example, the influx of 
artists coming from Tabriz or Safavid um, Persia. And it's very much connected to, you know, the physical proximity between the Safavids and the Ottomans and the various conflicts and more or less voluntary movement of artists from one court to the other, movement of objects too, that then participate in, in building a certain flexibility or interest in using models associated with other courts, but then building on this and developing your own set of criteria or genres that are then, you know, a new creation and not simply a vague copy or pale reputation or something, which is probably the kind of underlying assumption in this earlier scholarship that saw it a derivative of Persian painting. Yeah, exactly. That was a really difficult question. <laughs> uh, thank you. That was a really good answer. So <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, I wrote that question and I thought, Ooh, that's that's unfair, but <laughs> you know what, let's go for it. Uh, so yeah, that's a very really good answer. But indeed, looking at, uh, looking at headgears is always a good indication of where your painting was produced. Okay. Let's now focus on the topic of your doctoral dissertation, uh, which is 18th century uh, full-page depictions of men and women by the painters Levni and Bukhari. I'm not going to try to pronounce their first name because I really I can't emphasize how bad I am with Turkish. <laughs> uh, so I will let you do that. So what do we know about these two painters and their lives? Yes. Uh, so the first one is Abdul Jalil Chalebi Levni, and I have no idea if my accent is any better than yours, but thank it you. Is, it is, it is, do not doubt. <laughs> and so actually Levni, um, which means colorful, is his kind of artist name. Um, uh, but of course, because that's the name that is associated with the painted production, uh, that's the one that tends to to circulate in the art historical scholarship. Um, so, in this is someone um, that was active at the court of Ahmed III. Um, it was er originally thought that he was uh, in the court uh, workshop, but actually there there are no records of him being employed there. Sorry, Ahmed III. What's all these dates of reign? from 1703 to uh, 1730. So it's kind of the, the first 30 years of the 18th century. Um, and it's a ruler who's associated with uh, a return of the court to Istanbul, um, a, a period that you know some describe as the tulip age, uh, because there is this kind of historiographic narrative around the circulation of tulips and consumption and so on and so forth. Um, but yes, yeah, so he, he, he was active in, in court circles. Um, he was also a poet. So there is the, the hypothesis that he might have been one of the companions or kind of the, part of the inner circle of uh, the Sultan. What exactly his position one was is unclear because our main problem is we only have one uh, source telling us about his life and then we have one letter that he was probably written by him to um, the sultan so there's very limited information about his life and it's unclear for example where exactly he trained 
and there's kind of conflicting uh, information. Uh, but the idea is that from 1706 onwards, he's based in Istanbul, that previously he either came from Edirne or, or worked in Edirne, uh, or possibly even was trained in Edirne before coming to Istanbul, um, and then died in 1732. So we know that he died in 1732. This is one of the few a few facts that um, this... Um, this, this one short biographical notice by Ivan Sarai gives us as information. Um, so very much the early, yes, the, the early 18th century. For Abu Hari, well, we don't know because the only evidence of his existence is this name, Abdullah Buhari, that appears on a, a series of single sheets, also on a lacquered book binding. Um, and that's the extent of the evidence on his existence. Are they um, are they dated? These signatures, so these references. Some some of these works are dated, um, and they're um, often uh, accompanied by what I call a authorial inscription, because it's been called a signature before, but it's actually an inscription that says you know, by the pen of Abdullah Bouhari. And sometimes there's a date, sometimes there isn't. Um, one, uh, Tule Atan has recently suggested that he might have been involved or himself a dervish and involved in kind of dervish circles that maybe he, the Teke, so Sufi lodges could have also been a center of artistic production that he might have been involved in such circles, um, but we don't have a lot of evidence. So for the moment, that remains hypothetical. Um, so yes, it's quite easy to answer in the sense that we don't have <laughs> much information. What do we know about their lives? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> next question. Uh, well, the next question is really in the same in the same uh, tone, which is, what do we know about the chronology of their work? Um, so with Buhari, it's actually easier in the sense that you have dates on a lot of the artworks, so you can kind of build a chronology from that. Of course, you don't know when he was born and you don't know when he was when he died, but at least there's some idea of when he was active. Um, and so the earliest um, work is from um, 1728, 29, and it's lacquered bookbinding. Um, and then you, the, so the paintings that I worked on are basically dated between 1735 and 1745. So he's associated with the reign of Sultan Mahmud I, who reigned from 1730. So he followed Ahmed III uh, to 1754. Um, so basically both artists are considered to have been active in the first half of the, the 18th century, more or less. Um, and for Levni, so kind of his major work is this, the paintings that he did for a manuscript that talks about the festivities that were organized to celebrate the circumcision of Ahmed III's son. So there was a big festival that was organized and this was then narrated through a text uh, and uh, Levni and probably 
uh, a team were responsible for the paintings for one copy of this manuscript, the copy that was uh, intended for uh, the Sultan. There was a second copy made with a similar um, set of paintings, but by another artist called Ibrahim. And that copy was uh, for the Grand Vizier, who was the one who actually initiated and was in charge of this whole project. So this um, book of festival is called Surname. And this Surname um, is, you know, Levni's most famous work, the one that has also attracted the most scholarly research so far. The date at which the paintings and the whole manuscript was completed is, is not known exactly, but it's assumed that it's between uh, 1727 and 1730. So point in um, that time frame, uh, that manuscript was completed. And probably um, the other works associated with this uh, artist, including the paintings that I worked with, um, are from the reign of Ahmed III, possibly before this, or in close parallel, uh, co close proximity with the Surname. Uh, they're not dated, um, and there's no external evidence that could help us for the moment, at least. I, there was nothing I, I could find that could kind of make this dating more precise. Yeah. Where is the Suriname, the one by uh, Levni, where is he preserved? It's in the Topkapi Palace Museum. So like uh, a great number of the artworks associated with uh, this artist. Cool. So for the audience, I will put some reproductions of the manuscript under the episode. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite audio platform and give a rating. Add a comment and share on social media to help grow the audience and the community. To support the initiative, buy the host a coffee via the link under the episode. And now, back to the interview. So... Levni and Bukhari, they both produced single page paintings, either aimed at being sold individually, that's my assumption, or being bound in albums. Um, so obviously there is a lot to unpack here. The first thing is, can you introduce your corpus of albums? What are these albums? What are albums? Uh, and how were they made? <laughs> um, okay, so... I'll start with what are albums. Yeah. <laughs> so albums in the context of Islamic art history are um, collections in the format of a book uh, that involve different artworks on paper. Sometimes you have other materials, but generally it's an artwork on paper um, that are basically assembled in a kind of collage uh, type of montage where um, they're then extended with um, decorative margins that act as kind of a frame that both frames the different contents on one page, but also acts as a kind of um, continuous thread throughout the whole collection, bringing the whole, whole uh, het uh, yes, heterogeneous um, aspect of it a bit um, together. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the, the standard uh, definition that has been very much developed out of um, the study of albums made principally for rulers 
or for princes mm -hmm. uh, or members of the very high-ranking elite. Um, and these are not the albums I'm working on. No. <laughs> I worked on were um, not made for um, any Ottoman sultan or any Ottoman prince. Uh, they're much smaller in format. They're also much uh, simpler in the type of composition, the layout of individual pages, but also in their contents. They don't have um, calligraphy, for example, the ones that uh, contain paintings by Levni um, and single figures by Buhari. Um, yeah, so they're bound together as a book. How exactly they're bound is something that uh, scholarship still needs to investigate more clearly. But uh, the idea would be uh, something like a book that you could uh, flip through and look at and discuss uh, and basically appreciate. Um, my corpus itself consisted of seven albums, five of which included um, single figures by Levni uh, or by Buhari. And the reason I had two extra is because these extra albums were important for uh, my argument, um, either because they helped me kind of uh, make hypotheses about the, um, the type of people who would have mm. looked at these albums, or because um, two of the albums that I was working on were actually part of a set where they were in the set three albums. And mm -hmm. so I, I studied the third one uh, to kind of have the whole set, even though uh, the paintings attributed to Levni in that album are, in my opinion, um, emulations mm. rather than um, artworks that should directly be connected with the figure or aesthetics of, of Levni. But yeah. Nice. Another another point, but another point. basically, I had this uh, this group of albums that um, I I selected based on the the paintings they included um, because my focus was first the single figures, yeah, um, and because the single figures had so far very much been studied as kind of independent painting void of any kind of context. Yes, uh, it was um, crucial to me to consider the context in which they were viewed, which was the album, mm. and also considering you know, the, the lack of archival material documenting these objects, the album yeah. as a material object was almost my only source yeah. to kind of think about these, um, these objects' history. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, as you know, I'm very, very interested in in the, the the practice of compiling albums so for the audience there is one reference if you are interested in this topic the the first reference to to check and i will put it under the the episode is uh, the book by david roxberg on the persian album which was published i think in 2005 um this is kind of a a staple on 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 that particular topic but it's a very difficult material to study because and we're going to talk about that. Some have dates in it or ownership mark that can help dating and understanding the production context, uh, the use of these books uh, that can be really lavish uh, or very simple. Um, you have a whole range. It's a really large production. Uh, so it's very complex to understand the internal coherence sometimes of the volume. And also because 
there is a kind of a flexibility in the way these albums were compiled. You could remove pages, add pages. So those were, a lot were transformed through the, the years, through the centuries, but also a lot were disbounded for the pages to be sold on the art market individually. So now we have a lot of these paintings, whether they're Ottoman, Safavid or Mughal, where they were initially bound in albums with a full context and now they are isolated and we don't know where they come from and how they were how they were saw how they were uh, considered it's it's a very intriguing material to study uh, but it's very interesting because it really raised questions on yeah the consumption of art the production of art and also the trade uh, this is something that I've worked in and I'm still working on for, for India, obviously, 18th century India. But I think we, from what you you, you just said, there, there are some, some, some very interesting questions that are, that, that are, raised, that are raised as well for Ottoman uh, Turkey. Anyway, uh, I'm rambling on albums. Um, uh, so how do you date these seven, seven albums um and especially those without any ownership marks any preface any dedication i'm thinking in particular at one that is in the bibliothèque nationale de france uh which i saw years and years and years ago um again for the 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 audience i will put the link to the album that has been fully digitized under the episode so how do you how 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 do you approach that material um so Obviously, I, I I looked at what other scholars had said about these albums when there was any information, and often um, these albums have been dated through their contents. So, kind of looking at what is the the most recent painting in the album, and that gives you an idea um, as to at least uh, a bracket in which it could have been produced. Of course. Another dimension that's also very important is um, the marble paper margins, because um, in several of these, the, the margins are decorated using marble paper. Um, and there are certain patterns that are associated with the 18th century. Um, one type specifically that's called Hatib um, marble paper that is connected to a specific figure. This also kind of suggests a time frame, but it's very difficult because as you said, you know, I looked at the codicology and uh, if you look at the, the, the bindings, if you look at the patterns, the materials used for the bindings, it gives you a time frame, but it doesn't give you specific dates. Um, and that's why you, you know, you kind of, look to the paintings because those are generally easier to date. One album, for example, the H2143 that's in Topkapper, by looking at the margins, I was able to demonstrate that that one had undergone significant modifications and reshuffling of the pages. So the margins allowed me to recognize an internal coherence and to say, oh, well, these and these pages don't match. So they were obviously added later. And then there were, you know, other uh, codicological elements that clearly show these these pages were kind of a, a later phase in this history. But this didn't allow me to more precisely say 
Well, this is year, you know, 1700, this. So, yes, it, it remained often a question of, you know, second quarter, third quarter, late 18th century. There are a few Ottoman albums that are associated with one specific figure. This is a topic on which um, Zeynep Atbash uh, has worked a lot on, and this figure is called Mehmet Efendi, Mehmet Ebin Efendi, sorry. Um, and what makes him so interesting is he, you know, wrote on his albums that they belong to him, or there are inscriptions and traces here and there that can be collected together to reconstruct his collection, including the four albums that he put together or possibly had put together for uh, for him. And so I, I also kind of used this research to develop a, a, a hypothesis about the type of figure that would have been involved in the uh, production of these, these albums. Um, but unfortunately, that's more of an exception rather than the rule. Yeah, but that's very interesting uh, to have someone who, who had a collection and wrote on his own albums that he had or he compiled by himself or he most likely he had someone compiling these albums for him that's that that's that's the ideal scenario <laughs> right uh, that's fascinating so what is the significance of albums in 18th century ottoman turkey as an artistic medium was it used a lot what is this more of a niche kind of medium um was it traded largely well yeah, how was it used? Um, so I, I should say that, you know, research on Ottoman albums and specifically 18th century albums is still very much at the beginning. So there are a lot of objects that haven't been studied uh, properly um, or that, you know, have only been studied from one aspect and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's a bit difficult to to place the corpus that we have, uh, I studied seven, but there are others. There are also albums that you know only include calligraphy, for example. Um, and it seems to be an important medium given the quantity of objects that we have comparatively to you know earlier centuries. And as I said, the the differences in terms of the contents, the richness of the decoration, the layout, and so on and so forth, really do suggest that this is a phenomenon that's separate from what we've seen earlier, such as you know the um, the Muhad the Third album in Vienna, this kind of luxury elite production that's really connected to the imperial family, um, and the fact that there are so many uh, comparatively does also suggest uh, a type of patronage that belongs to a different class, uh, probably still uh, some sort of elite, uh, because it, it does require having access to the artworks, being able to spend money on these objects, and um, possibly also having the skills yourself to put together an album, which um, once again, uh, points to, to uh, the elite occupation rather than uh, a kind of, I don't know, a craftsman or someone um, from a, a humbler position in society. Um, and, and we do know, um, thanks in part to, to the research of Gwendolyn Colaccio, who's 
been working on, on this topic, uh, amongst others, of course, um, that there is a circulation of painting and a, a certain accessibility of painting with the rise of single sheets. With the rise of single sheets, and this is also the case in the Safavid uh, empire, you have more artworks that are also cheaper in a certain sense, um, and that are also catering to a different type of patronage. Um, and so this is where um, one can think that it, it starts playing an essential role or at least becomes adopted as a central role of display and self-fashioning as collector, as member of a educated cultural elite uh, among the Ottomans. But it's very difficult to make this concrete because apart from the example of Mimin Emin Effendi, you, you will have mentions here and there or anecdotes, um, but associating an artwork or a collection that has survived with a specific person and kind of profiling this person um, is, is, is very tricky. Uh, what um, Zeynep Atbash was able to show with one of the albums in, in Topkapı was some of the sheets had stamps on the back, allowed you to say um, that these pages had been bought in what kind of context exactly it still remains to be defined, um, but that you know the kind of the names uh, and the social position of the people uh, involved seem to to vary uh, quite a lot. So I remember one name was linked to a janissary, um, and so that's there's definitely you know more research to be done, or at least uh, I think several researchers are, are trying to define this new category of patrons a bit more specifically. But of course, because it's also um, more widespread and not linked to these kind of imperial categories that are more easy to track in archival material, you also have to do a lot more work looking for information here and there to try to put together um, um, the bigger picture, yeah. basically. Absolutely. Okay, let's now like really focus on the paintings. <laughs> so what are the characteristics of single figure paintings produced by Lefni and Buhari? What do they look like? So you generally have one figure uh, against a background that is often just bare paper. Um, sometimes you'll have a little blossom here, there, uh, in some rare examples, you have, you know, a tree or um, the figure is sitting on a chair, but generally it's a figure standing by itself against a bare background um, that is engaged in some sort of movement or in kind of presenting itself in a pose. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, clothing is a very important dimension. And that's because they're generally clothed uh, in colorful, um, very detailed um, clothing, uh, as far as the, the way in which it's depicted. And so that really draws the eye to these figures. And a lot of them hold something. So they hold a flower, they hold a music instrument, but you also have a few that are just kind of 
standing there without any kind of attribute uh, other maybe than the clothing that they're wearing. So why why do they choose to depict single-page figures? We know, obviously, that Levni in particular worked on manuscript illustration as well, but from what I understand, single-figure paintings were the core of their, their work, well, of their non-work, at least. Uh, why do you think they they chose this particular topic? So I, I think obviously Levni is a kind of complex figure since he did a lot of different things, but the role of single figure um, painting in, in both artists practice is I think connected to the fact that these artists were probably independent artists. So they're, they weren't part of the royal workshop or some, you know, prince's workshop. Um, and that meant that they needed to seek out patrons or, you know, receive at least orders or offer their work uh, to patrons as, as, as a way of promoting their art. As I said, we, we don't know much about their economic and social uh, situation, so it's difficult to know to what extent this was a professional activity or not. But if we see the, the idea of an artist who has to kind of demarcate himself and suggest a certain artistic individuality, then these, these single sheets also allow this in a way. Uh, and it's one thing that's notable about these artworks is that they do have um, a name on them. They, whether they were really all made by one person is another question, but there is this idea of a connection between a name and an artistic uh, visual idiom. And so, you know, the, the Levni single sheets often have Levni written on them and the name itself is organized uh, in a way that reminds you of seals in the way the letters are ordered. Uh, it's often you know, emphasized with a little gold line around it that kind of gives, gives it a visual prominence. Uh, it's not just in the corner, some random scribbling, like a stamp of a brand. With Buhari, because there is this inscription, it's not as uh, visually evocative of a stamp or a seal, but there is still this kind of formulation that reminds you of uh, the types of formulation that um, Safavid artists use, for example, you know, like this is the work of, by the pen of, so on and so forth. It's always the same uh, formulation, except in one painting where the word dervish comes up, but it's, it's also something that could potentially be questionable to what extent this word was really supposed to be there. But in any case, um, there is a clear kind of formula to how he writes these inscriptions. There is very much, because of this act of inscribing a presence onto the painting, um, there is the idea of associating this with an individuality, an artist as a creative person, um, which makes sense if we think of um, a type of market or at least a type of patronage structure where individual artists seek out patrons or receive orders 
and are sponsored by specific individuals. And where these, you know, these might not only be circulating between artist and patron or artist and um, sponsor, but also from one collector to the other, uh, from maybe an intermediary to uh, the collectors. Um, and in that sense, it would also make sense or be in the artist's advantage and also in the collector's advantage, you know, even thinking about today how the art market functions, uh, if you can uh, kind of see those paintings and know, oh, this is by so-and-so. Um, so this this could be one, uh, one of the, the explanations for the importance of single sheets as a collectible. Mm -hmm. And so these single figure paintings, these figures, were the, were the people depicted identified? Do we know who they were uh, and if they were even real? Do we have any indications? Um, so in the Buhari paintings, there's no information that's written on the paintings that connects them to specific figures. Of course, based on their clothing, uh, you can identify stock figures. So for example, uh, there are several depictions of barbers or maybe barber's apprentice. Um, but the in some of on some some of the paintings, associated with Levni, there are inscriptions that say this is a painting of so-and-so. Earlier scholarship interpreted these paintings as these inscriptions are captions. Currently, uh, and also the approach that I argued for, uh, was more to consider them as the traces of readers or later viewers' reaction. Uh, and kind of, you know, one of you were fixing a certain interpretation or certain evocation onto the painting at a specific stage in the history of this painting. Um, but rather than seeing this as the definitive, you know, description of the painting itself. And the other thing is that the, the names that are mentioned in these inscriptions probably have to do with uh, figures from popular literature because they, um, in, in some cases, the, the name that's written, so some paintings uh, say that the, these figures are, you know, the, love, the lover of um, Tamask, like the Safavid Shah. And it, when you look at the iconography, um, there are certain elements that um, contradict what's written in the inscription. So you, you have this kind of discrepancy between what the iconography tells you and what the paintings, um, what the inscriptions tell you. Sometimes it matches, sometimes it doesn't. And some of the names are similar to the names of, um, for example, the courtesans that appear in, or what we know about courtesans' names. Um, so you have this kind of world of fictional characters or fictionalized characters. There's one painting um, attributed to Levni that depicts Osman II. Um, and this was an Ottoman Sultan that had a very short reign, had a dramatic death. And very soon, a whole set of narratives were written and circulated about him. And so in a way, he, he also became a fictional character his depiction in this painting 
probably refers to him as a fictional character or to the stories around him and his life rather than, you know, kind of the official portraiture that is also part of uh, Ottoman painting, but was made within this court context uh, for very different purposes uh, than, than what these paintings were probably used for. That's very interesting. That reminds me of, um, well, yeah, that reminds me of what Susan Babai described as visual poetry. Uh, she wrote a, a paper a few years ago on, on Safavid uh, single page paintings. And her whole argument is that these kind of like generic figures of like men, youth, young women, cup bearers, and like all these, all these figures are really visual representations of well, poetic figures or 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 fiction characters. So so that's that's very interesting what you're saying because it seems like Levni and Buhari's uh, single uh, figure paintings kind of almost expand on that context where you also have uh, historical figures that are fictionalized characters. So it's it's very it's very interesting and that and that really brings back to the whole concept of the album, especially in the 18th century, what were these painting for and what were these albums for. I can talk about that for hours. But what I obviously want to talk about is clothing, because clothing, as you as you rightly said, is really what brings what is really the focus of these paintings more than in my opinion, my view at least, more than the, the, the characters themselves, more than the figure themselves, what the movements that are uh, depicted in uh, doing or or their, their potential identification is really the clothing that is the main uh, center of interest in these paintings. So uh, the full title of your thesis is, I quote, clothing and pictorial representation in 18th century Ottoman painting. Why was it important for you to talk about pictorial representation and what has it got to do with clothing, uh, in particular for uh, Levni and Bukhari? So the reason I, I wanted to have those keywords in, in the title was to deconstruct specifically in these paintings the idea of the image that had so far shaped the literature on these paintings. Um, because... We, we didn't mention this so far, but the, the research on these two artists and their single figures specifically was um, so far mostly shaped by a discourse of westernization. So this is a historiographic trend that um, is, is very important within the study of the 18th century uh, and uh, Ottoman painting and kind of the, the scholarship on these two artists uh, was often formulated within this idea of the greater influence of European art uh, and the idea that Ottoman artists were imitating or adopting European pictorial conventions, pictorial techniques. But also there seemed to be an underlying assumption that by adopting specific pictorial elements, they were also adopting European conceptions of the image. But for me, that was one of the, the weaknesses of the, the narrative that was elaborated in this scholarship, um, because I did not see 
this conception in the, the Levni and the Buhari paintings. Instead, the elements that were in these paintings suggested to me an approach to pictorial representation that was very much uh, growing out of the longer tradition of both Ottoman and Persianate visual tradition. So I, I, I wanted to kind of take a more theoretical approach to pictorial representation and to really try to understand how the aesthetics of these painting function. Um, and by understanding the construction, the visual construction that they uh, reflected, the aesthetic principles that were important to these artists and the way in which really these images were a mental production, an artistic production that gave us, of course, insight into that period, into cultural ideas informing their production, but in no way could be interpreted as an objective record of Ottoman fashion or an objective record of Ottoman women's behavior on the streets or something like this. So yeah, the, the, the clothing is there to uh, inform us on the one hand on these characters, because as I said, these figures probably correspond to, to popular or literary characters, but for many of them, you know, this iconography is kind of new or still being re-explored by these 18th century artists because a lot of these figures do not have any precedence or they have precedence, but more in the sense of um, they're being re reinterpreted and reformulated using a variety of sources. And so the clothing plays an essential role in creating this iconography, uh, in allowing you to situate the figure in a sense. Um, and then of course, there's an aesthetic dimension to the clothing. And that is because the focus is so much on the figure, as I mentioned, the background is pretty uninteresting. The, the clothing is the tool through which the artist both shapes the figure in, the term, in terms of really giving the figure a body, but also through which they show off their artistry, they add color, they bring in a, a certain formal characteristics that also demonstrate how, how good these artists are and make these depictions interesting to look at. And the more you look at them, the more you notice different elements. So what type of what type of costumes have you have you seen on these on these uh, in these paintings? So it's important to to think that um, as I said this is a construction so there is a process of abstraction and there are certain elements that are just very hard to identify uh, in part also because um, the scholarship on Ottoman clothing and you know 18th century Ottoman clothing is very limited there's still a lot of things that um, need to be researched and that we don't know so I did use um, some descriptions from European sources because I couldn't find Ottoman sources that were as detailed as to, you know, associate the description or the a term with the actual description <laughs> would allow me to identify this. Um, but you do recognize an overlap when it comes to the clothing worn by the Ottoman figures. What we know um, the Ottoman elite, uh, urban elite, was wearing in the 18th century and what we see in the paintings. 
And of course, especially for the headgear, you really need the, the descriptions to understand how the headgear functions. For the women, um, you in the Levney paintings, you have this bonnet that kind of flops at the back and that is held into place with a scarf that was wound around the head and then further ornamented with the jewelry and um, kind of earrings, uh, further head accessories. But in the way that uh, Levni depicts it, it was very hard to tell, is this something that's solid? Is this stiff? Is this really hanging? You know, how does this function as an actual object? And it's, and it's only when I was reading the description that I understood how it functioned because unfortunately we don't have any head pieces that survive put together. Uh, we have, you know, some handkerchiefs, some scarves that could have possibly uh, been, you know, been used at the time, but um, the, the actual pieces, garments that survive, the actual, you know, hats and so on and so forth that survive are very, very limited. And so for headgear, for example, I mostly had to rely on, on sources. For the robes, I could find one or two examples that could be compared. And there you also, when you actually find uh, an example, you also see the extent to which details was highly significant for these Ottoman viewers because you, you have you know, all the little buttons that are running down the inside of the sleeve that are shown in the painting and that appear on the gowns uh, or the, the shape of the sleeves sometimes. And so it's, it's a very interesting mix of the elements that the artist considers significant enough to be included in this painting. And then the other aspects that are depicted in a way that they're much more abstract than garments. Often the, the patterns on the fabric don't correspond to the actual fabric that was consumed in the 18th century. You can see a general aesthetic um, of textiles that corresponds to the aesthetic that became popular in the 18th century. But if you only have the paintings, the actual motifs on the paintings refer more to the ornamental vocabulary of book painting or illumination than they do to the actual textiles. Um, and even in the Buhari paintings, where kind of the visual feeling of resemblance is a bit closer, um, the, the depiction of the blossoms, for example, is very much um, ordered and designed according to aesthetic principles that have to do with the arts of the book and not, I don't know, like a desire to imitate the actual building or something. You know, they're like all of the little petals are symmetrical. They're all organized proportionally to one another. Um, if you were to, you know, if you look at the, the photos of the few clothing items that have survived, the visual impression that they give you uh, is completely different in terms of the, you know, which motifs appear where um, and, and how motifs are arranged on the, the yeah, the, the, the item and the cut and so yeah. on and so forth. That's very interesting. So what were the visual sources for Levni and Bukhari? I imagine, obviously, you know, 18th century clothing, they could see. But you, I think you mentioned it earlier, that there are also some European uh, figures uh, showing in these, in these paintings. So what were the sources for these figures? 
Um, yeah, so the, the depiction of clothing in the, the Persian figures and the European figures in the paintings by Lefni. For the Persian figures that you find among the Lefni single hall figures, the, the main sources were Safavid uh, single sheets and especially the kind of figural aesthetic connected to um, Riza Abbasi. So early 17th century, late 16th century uh, single sheets, uh, many of which were available in Istanbul because they also feature prominently in Ottoman 18th century albums. They're one of the most collected type of depictions in the albums that I've examined at least. And then for uh, his European figures, he probably looked at late 17th century French fashion engravings. Those I, I can actually date very precisely because fortunately the French ones are easy to date. So it's it really reflects the fashion of uh, 1680. So 1680 to 1690, a bit before uh, the time the paintings was made, a huge lapse. Um, and and the, the reason that they couldn't be so closely linked to the French um, examples is that the the way he approached these sources was to very much keep what he saw as the kind of the, the structural characteristics of these compositions. So the way that he represents uh, fabric, the way, you know, the approach to color patterns, there you really see the, that it's an Ottoman artist depicting these paintings and not a European, and that it's also not a copy or, but he does keep the pose of the figure. He keeps the uh, lines of the clothing so that you can really identify the type of clothing this is referring to. And he kind of invents an equivalent for the turban, which is the powdered wig. So all of the European figures have a powdered wig and it's very clearly a wig because in several paintings you could tell there's hair underneath. And the funniest part is the woman also carries a wig that is the type of wig that only men would have worn. So apparently there seems to have been a connection between powdered wig and European figure, because even in the engravings, the women clearly don't have that type of hairdo. So this was definitely, you know, a purposeful decision on the artist's part to create a certain iconography and to make it clear for his viewers who, you know, were used to the uh, headdress being the kind of identifying factor in the the figure that yeah the powdered wig becomes the turban of the the french figures <laughs> you know are not necessarily french the european the european in, in general that's very interesting it's, yeah there is a parallel in in obviously early 17th century persian painting and what is abasi where the distinctive element of european figures is a hat uh, you also, you see men, a lot of men wearing a, a you know a hat. I don't have hat terminology on the top from the top of my head, but a hat, and you you see also uh, female figures wearing hats because they're supposed to be European. That's that's how you recognize an European. So in 18th century Ottoman painting, it's the powder wig. <laughs> in the, the men also have hats, but uh, because. At that period in, in French fashion, the hats were carried and not worn. They carry the hats the way that the figures in the prints carry the hats. So the, the hat is there as an important characteristic of Europeans, 
but not as the headdress. <laughs> very interesting. That's fascinating to me because it's really, you know, as you as you said, is constructing that iconography. What are the elements that characterize one type of figures? The wig or the hat for a European. What is the element or the two elements that are going to characterize a Persian figure, an Indian figure, and so on and so forth. And that's that's a very, very, very interesting process of really building that iconography to make that, again, coming back to the visual poetry, uh, immediately recognizable, identifiable to the audience. It's like, oh, this character, I don't need the text. I don't need the identification or anything. I know who that is. And that is based on those iconographic elements. I found that absolutely fascinating. I mean, something that um, is is very interesting, and, and for me, it's an open question to what extent the, the Ottoman viewers would also have been familiar with this is it's, it's really the aesthetic dimension too, because I mentioned, you know, that for Levni Safavid, painting and drawing actually was, was very important. But for Buhari, um, there's actually a, a clear link, I argue in my thesis, with a very specific type of Mughal uh, early 17th century drawing, where um, you have these very thin lines that allow you to create a, a type of modeling. And in Mughal, Mughal context, you have this as, for, for figures at least, uh, as kind of black ink drawings, but you also have one example that I could find in an 18th century Ottoman album and top cover, where it's actually done with this kind of color washes too. So you have a similar approach with a hierarchy of line, one line that's you know more dense, that gives the shape, and then you have very thin, uh, more diluted lines that create this modeling. Um, and Buhari adopts uh, this kind of approach to modeling in the sense that he uses color contrast to create a sense of volume in his representation of clothing. So you have the, let's say the background layer that's an orange and on top you're gonna have very thin lines of red, for example, um, that are associated together so that they give you this impression of modeling when you look at the painting, you know, if you hold the painting. But if you zoom in on your computer with a high quality image, you see that actually it's very, very thin lines of the same pigment that are applied one next to the other. Um, and so conceptually, uh, it's the same idea, but then the way he, you know, puts it into place and uses it for his painting is very different because it really appears only for the fabric. Uh, it's, not, um, it's not something that is apparent, for example, in, in other elements he's depicting so much. The volume of the figure comes through the volume of its clothing. And this is what I was saying when I was uh, saying that the clothing is essential for the body of the figure is because actually the way the clothing is structured, the way both artists use line to um, structure the clothing, but also give you an impression of the limbs underneath. Um, this is really done as though clothing were some sort of second skin. And, and that's really a 
this kind of linear approach to the representation of, of the figures gives another dimension to the importance of, of the clothing. And for the Safavid material, I'm sure that uh, a lot of Ottoman viewers would have seen this visual emulation, seen the connection that Levni was establishing. Uh, and that's because, you know, the, the level of penetration and kind of um, circulation of Safavid artworks seems to be much higher based on uh, what has survived and, and what we know. But the, the exchange or circulation of Mughal or, you know, more widely uh, images from the Indian subcontinent, that's something that still deserves a lot of research and that is much harder to evaluate. Also, because from a geographic point of view, it's much further away. Yes. So there were there were a lot of trades and a lot of exchanges between the Mughal Empire uh, and 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 the Ottoman Empire, but that's that's something that is, yeah, uh, yet to be really understood. All right, with the hardest question for last, what is your favorite painting, either by Levni or Bukhari, and why? Uh, so my favorite painting um, is by Levni, and it's this depiction of a reclining woman that uh, is kind of resting with one arm raised, her clothing's partly undone. Uh, she has wine next to her. Uh, she probably just closed her eyes for a few seconds um, in between, you know, enjoying a sip of her wine. Yeah, that's the painting that started my interest in, in this artist and this whole topic. And I think to this day, it's still still the one that gives me the most motivation to write about this topic. Amazing. Uh, and with that, Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on the episode of The Art Informant today. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and learn a lot more about Ottoman painting. So thank you so much. Thank you. And it was a pleasure, uh, as always, to, to talk with you. Thank you for listening to The Art Informant. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite audio platform, add a rating and share around you to grow the community. Do not forget to follow The Art Informant on Instagram to receive all the podcast updates and I will see you in the next episode.